Reflections on Dante's Paradiso by Gil Bailey and produced by the Cornerstone Forum. Part 5. And in the Canto 23, he is granted a vision of Christ. And it is overwhelming, obviously. Beatrice says to him, This is the intellect and the sceptered might that opened the golden road from earth to heaven for which mankind has yearned in its long night. And Dante says, That bliss of, excuse me, that feast of bliss had swollen my mind so that it broke its bounds and leapt out of itself. And what it then became, it does not know. It blew his mind. The vision of Christ was too much for him. It overwhelmed him. And immediately, Beatrice says, Open your eyes and turn them full on me. And she smiles. She had said before, You cannot look at me while I'm smiling. And Dante's been told that this whole thing is being orchestrated for his benefit anyway. And it's almost as though they, the, the vision of Christ came a little too early. And they say, whoops, had to, that has to recede. And she says, okay, now look at me and I will smile. And this time she smiles and he's transformed but not destroyed. And right away she says, why are you so enamored of my face? You do not turn your eyes to see the garden that flowers there in the radiance of Christ's grace. So he's saying, hey, what is it? Which is it? This is like the good, the good cop, bad cop routine, you know, the, the interrogating room. I mean, he doesn't know which way to go. He is being buffeted right and left by this experience. But he's beginning to see the pattern, at least. He says in line 85 of 23, Speaking of Christ's face that recedes from him, he says, O majesty that seals them in such glory, you raised yourself on high, withdrawing there in order that my feeble eyes might see. Withdrawing there so that my feeble eyes might see. And and in a way he recognizes, at least dimly, that the whole thing is an attempt to wake him up. But not to put him too abruptly into the light. And it's at this point that Dante is going to be interrogated on the question of faith, hope, and love after he has completely lost all of his his available props and orientations. I think what I'd like to do is just mention one little thing that is in Canto, the first part of Canto 24. In line 25 and following of Canto 24, Dante says, "My, pen, you, you must understand, this has been this losing of his... You see, the reason he was so excited about finding the constellation Gemini was because it, it gave him hope that he could still perform his poetic task because it was Gemini that had, that had energized his poetic task. That's what he says. This is the source of all my creativity. It was his hope that by finding Gemini... He could, he could crank up the machinery of his poetic genius again the way it had always been. And I think it was a forlorn hope. Well, I mention that because what's at issue here is not just his own spiritual transformation, but the whole issue of how does one perform the poetic task beyond the place where the wherewithal for poetic creation has been withdrawn namely the tension of opposites. And he alludes to that 
absolutely brilliantly, almost no pun intended when I say brilliantly, in the line 25 and following of Cantor 24. He says, My pen leaps and I do not write. Not words nor fantasy can paint the truth. The folds of heaven's draperies are too bright. Now you have to pause on this to see it. It is absolutely magnificent. He analogizes his poetic dilemma to painting. And if you are painting a, an enfolded drapery, you paint it, you can paint it because that which is enfolded inside is darker than that which is on the outside. It's in the shadows. And by virtue of that distinction, you can paint something that looks like something. Dante says, in heaven, in this part of heaven, the folds of the drapery are as bright as what's on the outside. How are you going to paint? It's a marvelous image for the loss of contrast that begins to happen when the mind begins to shed its dualistic habits and enters the non-dual place. Well, the bewilderment has set in fully when Dante says the folds of heaven's draperies are too bright. And it's at that point that the interrogation on the theological virtues of faith, hope, and love begin, and the interrogators are uh, Peter, James, and John, the three best friends of Jesus, who are also uh, symbolic representations of the, of the, the virtues. And the first is Peter, who asked Dante to define faith, and Dante defines it in a, in a uh, conventional way. What's striking about this, this uh, is not so much the unique definitions Dante gives to things, because he is a, a, uh, an orthodox Christian, so he gives pretty much the catechism answer to the questions. Faith is the substance of what we hope to see and the argument or the evidence for what we have not seen. And that's a, that's a, uh, a reference to a passage in the, the epistle to the Hebrews. But we ought to stop and think uh, if uh, what these things mean to us. What does faith, hope, and love mean to us? And I'm not going to pursue it at the length that it des- deserves to be pursued, but... Uh, one always has to think of the thing that Augustine said about it. He, he said, Understanding is the reward of faith. Therefore, seek not to understand that you may believe, but believe that you may understand. And, of course, that's absolutely appropriate to where Dante is at this moment, uh, namely that he has tried and failed to understand as he has come through this part of the Paradiso. And his understanding has been frustrated. And now he... Uh, is invited to reflect on what faith really is. And Augustine says it is faith that will lead to understanding, not understanding to faith. So faith is, uh, is what? Courageous trust, uh, a way of being in uncertainty without uh, losing that sense of... of uh, trust. I, I think of often of the word uh, reliance, that one ha- it, is, it is to rely on what is, uh, on, on, on something that cannot be seen nor often even felt. 
And there is a little bit of that in in this because Peter says to Dante, uh, you you have assessed the coinage, but do you have any in your purse? <laughs> now, uh, Chardy doesn't translate the word purse, but in the Italian it is there. Um, and I think there might even be a little humor here because most of us uh, rely on what we have in our purse. And, uh, and in a sense, Dante has emptied his purse intellectually uh, so that now he can really rely on faith. But I think, you know, after anybody gives a definition of faith, the next question ought to be, well, that's fine. What do you have in your wallet? Uh, just, to <laughs> just to make sure that it's not an effete version. <laughs> but I do want to read what Paul Tillich says about faith. Because uh, Tillich has tried to sort this out for the modern mind by uh, going, you know, a- outflanking the problems we have with the traditional language. And uh, what he says is that everybody has a faith. And so it's not a question of somebody having faith and somebody else not having faith. The question is whether or not you have faith in something that will hold up. So, uh, so here's how he puts it. In true faith, the ultimate concern, that ultimate concern is how he tries to get around the resistance to the other older language. One ha- everybody has an ultimate concern. So he says, in true faith, the ultimate concern is a concern about the truly ultimate. While in idolatrous faith, preliminary, finite realities are elevated to the rank of ultimacy. The inescapable consequence of idolatrous faith is existential disappointment. A disappointment which penetrates into the very existence of man. This is the dynamics of idolatrous faith, that it is faith, and as such the centered act of a personality, that the centering point is something which is more or less on the periphery and that therefore the act of faith leads to a loss of the center and to a disruption of the personality. The ecstatic character of even an idolatrous faith can hide this consequence only for a certain time, but finally it breaks into the open. Isn't it so? Isn't it so? Everybody has faith and it's just a question of whether or not one has one has faith in something that is ultimate. Well, as I said, Dante's religious dilemma and his poetic dilemma here converge amazingly. He returned to Gemini hoping to resuscitate his poetic powers even for this last and most difficult uh, journey and I think uh, was frustrated in that attempt. And so he returns in Canto 25 imaginatively to his baptismal font. He thinks of his baptismal font. He says, If ever it comes to pass that the sacred song to which both heaven and earth so set their hand that I grew lean with laboring years long wins over the cruelty that exiles me from the sweet sheepfold where I slept a lamb and to the raiding wolves an enemy with a changed voice, remember the consulting the voice of the Father, with a changed voice and with my fleece full-grown, I shall return to my baptismal font a poet and there assume the laurel crown. For there I entered the faith that lets us grow into God's recognition. So he associates his baptismal font with 
his life as a poet. His life as his vocation as a Christian, his vocation as a poet, converge. And in a symbolic sense, he returns to his place of baptism. He meets James, who then interrogates him on the question of the theological virtue of hope. And uh, I'm not going to try to plumb this, uh, except to say the obvious, which is that the enemy of hope is optimism. Uh, optimism is, is more of, a, is more of a, uh, an enemy of hope than despair. Despair is closer to the theological virtue of hope than optimism is. And on that, I want to offer two humorous comments. One from G.K. Chesterton, who said, Humanity never produces optimists till it has ceased to produce happy men. <laughs> but the one I like most of all is Frederick Buechner. Buechner is this, is this uh, a theologian, sort of a popular theologian and a novelist with a great sense of humor. And he has this little book, I think it's called The, the ABCs of theology or something like that. And uh, it's a little dictionary form. So have you seen it? It's funny. It's very funny. And uh, so I looked up in there, Hope, and it's hilarious. He has no entry at Hope. He simply refers you to two other places in the dictionary. <laughs> so it says, Hope, parentheses, see wishful thinking... <laughs> Page so and so, and the cross. Page so and so. Oh, I mean to tell you. <laughs> so anyway, that's hope. And then the big one, and this one raises all the questions. For, this one is the big one. John, Saint John, and the question of love. And John has John is the in, the embodiment of everything for Dante. He is the evangelist of love. The disciple of love. Uh, he is the author for Dante. Dante understands John to be the author of the gospel as well as the disciple. He is the disciple whom Jesus loved, the beloved disciple. He is the author of the gospel of love, the gospel in which Jesus says, love one another as I've loved you. And he is the author of the prologue to the gospel which begins in the beginning was the word. And uh, we must keep in mind particularly that latter part because it's so important to what happens in the last part of Canto 26. In the first part of Canto 26, he sees... Uh, well, in the last part of Canto 25, he sees John and he is blinded. And John, John helps Dante correct a medieval legend about the fact that John uh, did not die but was uh, elevated into heaven. And uh, Dante says this, As one who stares squinting against the light to see the sun enter a partial eclipse and in the, look, in the act of looking loses his sight... So did I stare at the last flame from that sphere until a voice said, Why do you blind yourself trying to see what has no true place here? My body is earth in earth. Namely, I was buried. I, didn't, I didn't, wasn't taken to heaven. And John says, Well, now that you're blind, let's try to make the best of it. Well, now see, what he's done is he has reached, when he gets to John and the virtue of love, and, and John is also the, the epitome of the question about the word, uh, Dante reaches his ultimate state of uh, impoverishment. He is blinded. John says, "Until this is Canto 26, verse 4, until your eyes once more regain their sense of the light you lost in me, 
it will be well for discourse to provide a recompense. Speak, therefore, starting with the thing that most summons your soul to it, and be assured your sight is only dazzled and not lost, for she who guides you through this holy land has, in a single turning of her eyes, the power that lay in Ananias' hand. And so there you have the conjunction again of these themes. Ananias was the one to whom Paul went when he was blinded and uh, who helped him uh, wait out the regaining of his sight. So he says, let's engage in discourse while you're blind. And the word for discourse here is from the word, from the verb, regionare, which means to reason or to, or to contemplate as well as to sh- discourse. It's, it's, the hint here is of something having to do with consciousness, uh, becoming aware. And, Dante, and, of course, the subject matter is love. And John says to Dante, a very striking image comes here and the, some of the scholars have criticized Dante. They think it's a lapse on his part because it's so, it's so off-putting in a way. John says, with how many teeth, excuse me, say with how many teeth this love consumes you. Dante asks the, answers the question about love and then John says, well, how, with how many teeth has it eaten you up? Very discordant image. Dante says, all those teeth with power enough to turn the heart of any man to God have joined in my heart turning it to love. I think Dante is in part commenting here on his early association with the Romantic poet movement who would have been speaking love with the lips and would have thought of love as the eyes and the lips and who would have sentimentalized love in that way. And when he meets this towering John and I figure, he says, how about the teeth? Have you had teeth teach you about love? So Dante says, all those teeth. And then he says, the existence of the world and my own too and the death he took on himself that I might live and what all believers hope for as I do, these and the living knowledge mentioned before have saved me from the ocean of false love and placed to me by the true safe on the shore. So thanks to the teeth that chewed me up, I was saved from the ocean of false love. And I think this is Dante commenting on his earlier association with the Romantic poets, many of whom stayed there. He, unique among them all, made this great journey through the mysteries of love. But many of them stayed there. Uh, His sight is restored. He sees better than before. And who does he see? Adam. Now, Adam to the medieval mind was someone who represented the perfect human being, the archetypal human being. So if you could, if you could have, if you could consult with Adam, you could find out things about what it means to be a human being. And this is a great opportunity. Dante has satisfactorily come to grips with faith, hope, and and love, and now he sees the primordial human being. It's almost as though he has gone, you know, back in time to the ultimate. And Adam reads Dante's mind and says, You wish to know how many years it is since God created me in the high garden where she prepared you for these stairs to bliss, and how long my eyes enjoy the good they prized, and the true reason for the great rejection, and the tongue I spoke, which I myself devised. 
So he wants to know three, th four things. How long ago was he made? How long did he spend in the garden? Why did he? What was the cause of the fall? And what was the language he spoke? Now, which of those is the unexpected question? It's the one about the language. And that's the one that's driving Dante. And this is where, again, his faith journey and his poetic journey are coming down to the same issue. Adam issues a mild rebuke by reordering these questions. The first two are about the time, how long he's been, how long ago he was made, and how long he lived in the garden are peripheral questions. The first question he answers is the central question: What caused the fall? He says. Know, my son, that eating the tree was not itself the cause of such long exile, but only the violation of God's decree. Which is to say that there was nothing wrong with the tree. It was a perfectly good tree. Creation is good. It wasn't a bad tree. It is that happiness requires limits. And God gave everybody... God gave Adam and Eve everything and knew, you know, I think it was George Bernard Shaw said happiness requires not getting everything you want. Um, something like that. And God looked at it and said, no, happiness is going to, ha it's going to require a limit someplace. It's strange that it does. It just does. And so God, in order to provide the happiness... So, okay, well, it'll be a little one. We'll just mark off this one little tree, you know, just one little tree, that's all. You just have to have a little bit of limit in order to create happiness. This is all, I think, implicit in there. And Adam and Eve couldn't live with limits. And if you can't live with limits as a human being, you'd be unhappy. That's just the long and the short of it. So that's the fall right there. Wholeness requires sacrifice. You don't have a soul unless there's somewhere in your life a road not traveled. It requires that something is not, is off-bound. So anyway, that was the cause of the fall. So, um, by the way, this is Canto 26 of the Paradiso, in which, by implication, limits are valued and the importance of them is underscored. Canto 26 of Inferno is where Ulysses, who refused all limits, is the story of Ulysses' death is depicted. And Ulysses was the one who would not be satisfied with any limits. So there's a structural parallel. Just before he met Adam, Peter said to Dante, You son, who must yet bear around earth's track your mortal weight, Open your mouth down there. Do not hold back what I have not held back. In other words, you must go down and speak what you have seen. And Dante, under all these conditions that we've described today, the, the folds of heaven's draperies are too bright. How do you articulate it? And so on and so forth. The big issue, and the one that Adam spends the most time on, is the question of language. And that is for Dante the central question. He says this at the end of Canto 26. The tongue I spoke had vanished utterly long before Nimrod's people turned their hands to the work beyond their capability. That's speaking of the Tower of Babylon. 
the, the thinking was that everything was hunky-dory until the Tower of Babylon, that everything was, that all, all was, the, the language that was spoken was the pristine, elemental Hebrew language, the ultimate language of God, and then the Babylonian Tower caused this di- division among the tongues. Adam says no. It degenerated long before that. This is a shock. For no, Now, this is a beautiful tercet, this next one. For nothing of the mind is beyond change. Man's inclination answers to the stars and ranges as the starry courses range. This is a world in flux. Welcome to the first existentialist in a way. That man should speak is nature's own behest. But that you speak in this way or in that, nature lets you decide as you think best. Till I went down to the agony of hell, the supreme good whose rays send down the joy that wraps me here was known on earth as El. El is that, is that uh, name for God, the temple Beth El, the home of El. And then was known as Yah, first, first letter or syllable of Yahweh. And it must be so, for the usage of mankind is like a leaf that falls from the branch to let another grow. Now, this is no big deal for us, but it is if we look at it. Dante had written an earlier tract called um, De Vulgare Eloquentia, in which he thought, he, he thought of the original language. He, he had been preoccupied with language all his life. The original language must have been that Hebrew language that Adam spoke. Remember in the second chapter of Genesis it says, and out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every fowl of the air and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. And whatsoever Adam called every living creature, that was the name thereof. And that is the primordial poetic act, to call everything by its right name. And that's the job of poetry, the, the endless job of poetry, is to call everything by its right name. And the what Dante had earlier thought is that the ultimate language for speaking that ultimate rightness must have been, in a sense, the language God made or the language that Adam, God's creature, first made, that elemental Hebrew language. And now he finds out that it's not. And he had based his life on the fact that it is not, in a way, because he had, uh, against all the conventions of his time, written an ultimately serious poetry in the vernacular tongue. And the vernacular Italian bore the same relationship to Latin as all the languages of the world bore to that original Hebrew language. So this was, for Dante, something that touched his own experience deeply. And so he is rejecting the hope of being able to return to or reviving any pristine articulation. He is, in a sense, the first modern. If you see that what, he's, what's, what he is finding out here is that there is no linguistic bedrock. There is no fundamentally reliable... Un, there is nothing that can be found that need not be interpreted. There is no... There's not, you see what I'm saying? There's nothing at the, 
that doesn't there isn't a language that we can find that, that we can find that we will not have to reinterpret it is the nature of language to go through change and language is the bearer of consciousness cultural consciousness so that if there is no primordial bedrock the whole question of consciousness and the movement of the, the human experiment is cut loose from its moorings in some in some mysterious way dante had chosen a poetic life and had lived out that poetic life largely relying on the vernacular and now he receives a kind of what you might call an epistemological shock which is to say that there is no bedrock here's what robert duncan said about a similar he's a modern american poet said about a similar uh, realization he said the study of intelligence in language where rationality is taken for intelligence little accounts for our experience in language the logical positivist seeking sound ground comes to the despairing conclusion that all the world of experience is madness and poetry somebody once said that the description of quantum theory is quantum theory I don't even know what that sentence means. <laughs> but but I know that it, it captures something of the existential quandary. The description of quantum theory is quantum theory. Every... I, I, I can't say every. What is unique about our time, as far as I know, and I, my knowledge is limited on the score, but... The most vital philosophical work that's being going, that's undertaken in our time is almost all of it dealing with the mystery of language. No matter where you go to find where the exciting philosophical work is taking place, it's Heidegger or Wittgenstein or, or Paul Ricoeur or whoever it is, uh, Owen Barfield, it's the mystery of language. It's something to do with the mystery of language and how it is that language requires the hermeneutic. It requires us always to be grappling for a new articulation of it, that we grow by having the bedrock literature that we must rearticulate. And it is that necessity to rearticulate that is that that is part of that growth process. And the philosophical tradition is tremendously preoccupied with language right now. So I wanted to conclude with just reflecting on Dante's realization being told by Adam that there is no fundamental uh, articulation which does not need to be reinterpreted. And then return to Eliot, who is the modern echo of Dante. That's not doing justice to Eliot. He's more than that. But he, but one can recognize the Dantean dilemma very much in Eliot's work. I want to read two passages from from the Four Quartets. The first from East Coker, which was the first, he, early, the earlier of the two in terms of when he wrote them. And I think this is T.S. Eliot coming right, walking right away from Canto Twenty Six of the Divine Comedy, of the of the Paradiso. He says this, Each new venture is a new beginning, a raid on the inarticulate 
with shabby equipment always deteriorating in the general mess of imprecision of feeling, undisciplined, un- undisciplined squads of emotion. And what there is to conquer by strength and submission has already been discovered once or twice or several times by men whom one cannot hope to emulate. But there is no competition. There is only the fight to recover what has been lost and found and lost again and again and now under conditions that seem unpropitious. But perhaps neither gain nor loss. For us, there is only the trying. The rest is not our business. In the next poem in the Four Cortes that he wrote, Little Gidding, there's a passage, there's a section in Little Gidding in which Eliot meets some dead master, he says. And there's an echo of the passage in the Inferno where Dante meets a dead master, Brunetto Latini. Uh, But he doesn't say who the dead master is, but it's pretty clear who it is because when he meets the dead master, he starts writing in Tercerima which is Dante, the Dantean rhyme scheme. So it's pretty clear who, who the dead master is. And guess what the dead master is talking to him about? Language. And so Dante and Eliot are preoccupied with this question of language. If, you, if one looks at language, what, some very strange things can start to happen existentially and, and even psychologically. Anyway, here's Eliot, who meets some dead master... And the dead master is talking to him about language. And uh, he says the following. This is the dead master speaking. Last season's fruit is eaten, and the full-fed beast shall kick the empty pail. Now just think of that as a commentary on language. Boy, oh boy, that's a beautiful image. Last season's fruit is eaten and the full-fed beast shall kick the empty pail. For last year's words belong to last year's language and next year's words await another voice. But as the passage, passage now presents no hindrance to the spirit unappeased and peregrine between two worlds become much like each other, so I find words I never thought to speak in streets I never thought I should revisit when I left my body on a distant shore. Since our concern was speech and speech impelled us to purify the dialect of the tribe and urge the mind to aftersight and foresight, let me disclose the gift reserved for age to set a crown upon your lifetime's effort. Well, it's very, this, this trails off here a little bit because it's very hard to talk about talking or to speak about language or whatever. But there is something here that I think Dante can be seen as the first. Dante and those who, like him, awoke to a, a, a language evolution that was new. At about the same time Dante is writing in the vernacular Italian, Meister Eckhart is beginning to write his sermons in German, Chaucer is beginning to write poetry in English. Uh, There is a breaking out of the Latin uh, standard language into the vernacular and an experience that language, that that our 
journey in consciousness will be simultaneously a journey in language. Adam, in a sense, gives Dante permission to finish the poem. He says, language is a fluctuating thing. And it has to be reinvented. And you're at a place where you must reinvent it. It would have been nice. It would have been nice if Dante had gotten to the end of... uh, It would have been nice for him if when he got to the constellation Gemini, he could have resuscitated all those dualisms and finished the poem that way. He couldn't. It would have been nice when he got to Adam if Adam could have presented him with the pristine uh, idiom for expressing the paradisal truth. Adam would have known that. Adam lived in paradise. He created language for paradise, right? Adam would have had a paradisal language. It would have been nice. Dante says, well, here's another chance. I didn't work with Gemini. Maybe Adam will provide me with that language. And Adam says, I'm sorry. There is not one. You have to invent it. You always have to invent it. You have to find... You have to give the world its new names all the time. You have a new experience? Give it a name. And so, in a sense, he gives Dante permission to finish the poem. Well, especially here, if not before, in these last uh, half-dozen cantos of the Paradiso, uh, we can no longer safely distinguish between Dante the poet and Dante the mystic. Uh, His Christian vocation, which is to know, love, and serve God, becomes indistinguishable from his poetic vocation, which is to call everything by its right name, including uh, some of the rarer human experiences that are very hard to call by their right name. So that these two vocations blend, and uh, for us to have access to the depth of the meaning of the poem, we have to begin to take Dante's, uh, we have to begin to give him credit for more than just being a major poet. We can't take him seriously without taking seriously the assertions that he is making in his poem. And these are not assertions that he makes for the sake of a poetic flourish, but assertions that he makes because of some experience. Of course, we have no access to what that experience might have been. Uh, But one gets the feeling about these cantos uh, that corresponds to what uh, Martin Buber said in his masterful book on Moses when he quoted some passages out of Exodus and Book of Numbers and said, uh, regardless of what the scholars uh, might say about the identity of Moses or the, you know, who he was or what he was, clearly these passages that he points to are not insights that are born at the writing desk. And likewise with these pa- these cantos of the Paradiso. But Dante has been critiqued for his, his uh, worldview, for his theology, but the very thing that he's critiqued for often is the thing that makes him reliable. Dante believed that... Were he to make, uh, were he to purchase a poetic flourish at the price of truth, he would pay for it in his eternal life. So he is very careful to try to say 
what he has experienced as the deepest truth, not in order to write some fancy poem, but because he knows his life depends on it. His two vocations have converged. At the near the end of the Purgatorio, there was one of the most striking scenes in the Purgatorio. At the top of the Purgatorio mountain, earthly paradise, Beatrice and Griffin, who is, who is the representation of Christ, and Dante. Dante looks into the eyes of Beatrice, and he sees reflected there the griffin who is the Christ. And that tells the whole story of Dante's spiritual journey. It's echoed again in Canto 28, as Canto 28 begins with this marvelous and puzzling line, when she whose powers imparadise my mind had so denounced and laid bare the whole truth of the present state of miserable mankind. At the end of Canto 27, uh, Beatrice had critiqued the human situation once again. But that first line, she whose powers imparadise my mind, is a passage in Buber's I and Thou where he says, he who loves a woman and brings her life to present realization in his is able to look into the thou of her eyes into the beam of the eternal thou. And that is precisely Dante's experience with Beatrice. So Canto 28 goes on. Just as a man before, again, it's picking up on this theme of reflecting in the eyes of Beatrice. At the end of the Purgatorio, it was the second person of the Trinity, the Incarnation, the Christ. And here, it is the first person of the Trinity. Just as a man before a glass can see a torch that burns behind him and know that it is there before he has seen or thought of it directly and turns to see if what the glass has shown is really there and finds as closely matched as words to music the fact to its reflection. Just so, as I recall, did I first stare into the heaven of those precious eyes in which, to trap me, love had set his snare. Love here is... Amor, the God Amor. This is the, the creator God disguised as the God Amor in order to trap Dante's affections. It's the beginning of the matriculation into eternal life is that Amor experience. Then he says, I turned, turning felt my senses real as my own were struck by what shines in that heaven when we, when we look closely at its turning wheel. When we look closely at its turning wheel, that's the when is very key here. We most of the time don't look closely at its turning wheel. Most of the time we see, the, you know, the swirling of it. But we don't look closely at the turning wheel. The contemplative life consists of looking closely at the turning wheel. And if we look closely at the turning wheel, if we get to that stage of our life where we can begin to look closely at the turning wheel, Dante says, here's what happens. I saw a point that radiated light of such intensity that, it, that the eye it strikes must close or ever after lose its sight. The star that seems the smallest seen from here would seem a moon were it placed next to this, as often we see star by star appear. This is an infinitesimally small, that is to say, dimensionless point at the center of the swirling cosmos. And Dante, who had not stopped to look closely, to look intently at the turning wheel before, has now stopped to look, thanks to Beatrice. 
and he sees the point. He gets the point. And, about, and at about the distance of a halo, uh, that a halo surrounds a heavenly radiance, there is this ring of fire spun faster than the fastest of the spheres circles creation in its endless gyre. Great ring of fire. And we find out shortly that these, this is the first of the angelic order. Wildly gyrating around this center. And just outside of it, another cycle, another circle of the angelic order. Again moving, not quite so fast, not quite so brilliantly, but still moving. And on out the nine circles of the angelic order. And in the middle, the dimensionless point. And as with so many of these passages, the best con- contemporary commentator is T.S. Eliot. It's the passage that most of us know so well. It's so often referred to from, from the four quartets. This is direct commentary on Dante's vision. At the still point of the turning world, neither flesh nor fleshless, neither from nor towards, at the still point, there the dance is. But neither arrest nor movement, and do not call it fixity, where past and future are gathered, neither movement from nor towards, neither ascent nor decline, except for the point, the still point, there would be no dance, and there is only the dance. And most of us are wallflowers in that dance, because we have not noticed the point. We have not gotten the point of the dance. Well, Dante says, line 41 and following, line 40 and following, I was on tender hooks, as my lady saw, to ease my mind. She said, from that one point are hung the heavens and all nature's law. Look at the closest ring I would have you know it spins so fast by virtue of love's fire, the ray of which pierces it through and through. Love's fire. Now we have to see a little thing that Dante is doing here, a play on language. That one point, the word is punto, that point. At the closest ring, I would have you know it spins so fast by virtue of love's fire, the ray of which pierces it through and through. What's translated here, pierces, is in the Italian, punto. That is to say, it is the past participle of the verb pungere, which means to pierce, to sting, to goad. Okay? So the punto which is the dimensionless point of the Godhead, and the punto, which is the goad, the breaking into material life of that divinity. And the punto has to do with love's fire, the goad to creation is love's fire. The material world sits as a lump until it is goaded into its journey by the imputation into it of love's fire. The punto creates the punto, and creation is on its way. <laughs>
God is the unmoving point which causes all the motion in the universe by goading the universe with this desire. Howard Thurman, I remember one of the times when I visited Howard Thurman, he made this gesture, I can't forget it. He had this shelf of books nearby that were all, all of which he had written, and he just waved his arm in some casual way towards that shelf over there. And he said, none of that stuff I ever wrote has done justice to the thing that's been bugging me. I always remember that, bugging me. It's the goad that's in there that makes creation move. And it is punto. It comes from that punto which is the Godhead. And it is the Godhead in all of creation that is, that is causing that longing and desire that makes the world move. I want to explore this a little bit and try to uh, and try to bring it into our idiom and, and uh, explore what what the implication of Dante's vision might be for us. Dante, as you know, key to Dante is the notion of divine will. Everything depends on the divine will. My happiness, my peace, depends on the degree to which I, my life can be brought into concert with what is for me the divine will, that is to say the divine will, the, the divine will as expressed in my being. Uh, that is key. The problem with the, with the notion of divine will is that uh, in the, uh, it gives rise often to some real silliness. That is to say God is willing this phenomenon to occur. So, so we immediately get into this thing, well, why is he or she willing that as opposed to something else? I mean, why did God will that the airplane crashed? Or why did... So we get into some funny business, God the puppeteer or something. Why did God do that? Dante's vision, I think, deepest vision, I think would be more available to us if instead of thinking of the divine will, we thought of the divine urge. It's more in concert with this idea of the... Punto. So the divine urge is is insinuated into the material order at all levels of the material order and left to do its work. And the human responsibility is to is to grow ever more conscious of the implication of that urge. To move from a life of compulsion to a life of freedom to have my will in concert with the goal of that urge is to be free. A compulsive life would be one in which that urge is operating at a primordial level, compelling and impelling, but not yet free. 